I started off by, um, you had been sharing scriptures with one another, you remember, and I started off by asking you um, if when you went to work the next day, somebody asked you what you had done at the weekend, would you find it as easy to share with them what you had been sharing with each other in church? Um, now then, I go into school two days a week, and I went into Begbrook School last uh, Wednesday, and for the first time in two years that I have been going there, one of the children said to me, Dave, what did you do at the weekend? And she was a little Muslim girl who asked me. I said, I can't remember what I did on Friday or Saturday. I think it was okay. But I said, um, you know that I'm a follower of Isa the Messiah. And uh, just like you go to mosque on Friday and you have imams that teach people, I said, that's my job um, for Isa the Messiah. I teach people. So on Sunday, I was teaching people. And she said, that's cool. <laughs> and then she spoiled it all by saying, but didn't you do any fun stuff? <laughs> now, I'm not saying that church should be fun stuff, but it shouldn't be gloomy stuff, should it? Theoretically, we should not be coming into church and going out feeling worse. Or coming into church and saying, I don't know why on earth I bothered to do that. Because whatever the people around us are doing, God is here. The Almighty God who made heaven and earth is here. He is present by his spirit. It is possible for you, amongst a bunch of people who share that same spirit, to find kindred, spiritual experience and encouragement, even if the sermon's the worst sermon you've ever heard. And today, who knows, it might be. You still have each other because you share the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can interact with each other. You can sit on the side and you can pray with each other. You can commiserate with each other. For some of you, the songs would have really set you alight, and some weeks the songs won't. But we do share the same spirit. Theoretically, when we come here, we should not be going home saying, now for the fun stuff, as though nothing good has happened. Okay. Now, we've been talking about or uh, the creation today, now, you people are a new creation in Christ. Did you know that? If you are in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, you've put your hope in him, you have been made by his spirit a new creation in Jesus. We are a new creation, a new citizenship, a new nation, a new people. Set up by God to follow Jesus in a world which is so beautiful but spoiled by our own doing over generations past. The subject today is moving from a culture of guilt to a culture of grace. Number one, culture is a difficult word to, um, to talk about. It's uh, those things and beliefs and attitudes which affect us in the way that we do a whole of our life, basically. The, many of the, these cultural issues are subconscious issues uh, that we're not aware of, but they're just the things that drive us to be the people, the society, the church, the kind of group that we are. Um, 
I'm not a psychologist, so I can't speak as a psychologist about guilt. But I can tell you that there are two forms of guilt. One form of guilt is objective guilt. Everyone here is guilty objectively, in the sense that if the scripture is true, and we believe it is, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Objective guilt is when a law has been posted and we have offended against it. God's law has a demand over us, has, a, has, a, has requirements of us, and all of us have broken God's law. So objectively, we're all guilty, even though we may not feel it. We don't always feel guilty. There are social and, and civil laws. When I got, a, when I got a, a, a fine for speeding at 4 o'clock in the morning at 40 miles in a 30-mile-an-hour zone because some little camera got me, it's, it was no excuse to say it was 4 o'clock in the morning, there was no other traffic, not even a cat about. I actually broke the 30-mile-an-hour speed limit. I was objectively guilty though I felt quite aggrieved at it. <laughs> so the feelings were opposite feelings then. I felt I'd been hard done by, but actually I'd broken the law. Uh, there are social laws and family laws that are sort of standards placed down, and when we break these under those codes, we are objectively guilty. Now there's a subjective guilt as well. And subjective guilt is where um, we actually feel within ourselves, oh, I should have done better. Oh, what a silly idiot I've been. Sort of, um, we're sitting at a table with a friend in a cafe, and, and we've been, we're sort of saying, oh, we had a wonderful time in church yesterday. And we knock a cup over, which knocks their cup over, and the hot coffee goes in their lap. Subjective guilt says, Oh no, what a silly fool I am, I'm so clumsy, oh I'm an idiot, oh don't know where to put my face. This is just me feeling I've failed and oh dear, I'm no good and I'll never stand up and be any good again. Objective guilt would be to say, I'm so clumsy, I'm sorry, look, help me wipe you up. If there's a, if there's, um, if there's a cleaning bill, please let me pay it. It's my fault. Sorted. Do you get the difference? Now then, it's interesting because I was reading um, some chapters or a, a chapter from a, a, a Christian counselling book uh, this week and I've noticed it in a number of places that one of the big issues for Christians is guilt. We've got doctors here. I see a doctor nodding. I'm not going to look around all the doctors in case some of you don't know. <laughs> but one of the biggest issues for Christians is guilt. Now then, much of this may be subjective guilt. It may be the um, expectations which are placed on you, either by Christian teaching you've received, or Christian parents, or by ministers standing at the front, thumping away at you, um, guilt that I'm not good enough. Oh, I should have been there on time. Well, I shouldn't have wear that pair of trousers to church. That doesn't bother me, by the way. That, 
kind of guilt the, where you say, oh, no, I'm not, just not doing enough. Oh, no, I really ought to help in the Sunday school. Or if I don't help in the Sunday school, I don't know what's going to happen. That kind of stuff where we feel constantly under pressure from what we assume are the expect expectations of others, sometimes from the expectations of parents. Some of those young people, some of your children, may go out and be at school uh, striving to fulfill your expectations of them, you see. And they will experience subjective guilt, which they shouldn't do. So when we're talking about um, cultures of guilt, we're talking about those things which impinge upon our habits of life in such a way that the way we go about our life sort of means that we're really moving through life, trying to sort of keep up with expectations, trying to fulfill a role, forgetting that we're sinners, and we're ransomed by grace. And Jesus didn't accept us on the basis of the hours we put in or the perfection of our work or any such thing. So I can't examine your hearts for you. God the Holy Spirit can do that. We can talk about this afterwards, but we've also got doctors around, and we've got at least one psychologist that I know of in the church. If anybody has serious issues, don't come to me to counsel you. I can talk through scriptures with you and pray things through things with you but I don't have the expertise to be that really clever sort of insightful counsellor sometimes God gives us discernment but it's for you number one what does motify you, motiv um, motivate you is it the fear of failure the guilt factors now if it is it will probably express itself in the way we share the good news of Jesus. I see that this has come out in some evangelical ways of expression. And I've used these. I'm not, I'm not being a condemner here. I'm just saying these are some of the ways that it's come out. And I've been guilty of this as well. You know, the four things God wants you to know. Uh, it's an old-fashioned thing, and probably some of you who are young have never heard of it. But you go up to somebody with a tract, and you say, God wants you to know that he made the world, that you're a sinner, that Jesus is the answer, and you need to repent. Which kind of lays guilt on people. It's a kind of advertising which goes on which says, you've got wonderfully white, clean teeth. Look at your gleaming teeth. But did you know that in the cracks in your teeth and out of sight, there's so much bacteria that your teeth will fall out by the weekend if you don't use our new special teeth conditioner and bacteria killer? So you sort of end up feeling, oh, guilty, my teeth, my teeth, my teeth. I must get the, I must get the answer. And a lot of evangelism has gone on a little bit like that. Get them to feel really guilty and then supply the balm which is Jesus. And actually the Son of God himself came into this world and said I have not come into the world to judge the world. And he tells us not to judge. Judge not lest you are judged because with the judgment you judge it will be meted out to you. I've sort of switch between versions somewhere there. The judgment you give will be the judgment that will be given to you. So yes, we are to make judgments. If somebody commits adultery, we can't turn around and say, I mustn't judge them. We say, look, you have cheated on that man. We call a spade a spade. But we don't then say, and because you have cheated on that man, therefore, we will be judge and sentencer. 
We can't do that. We're surrounded in this world by sinfulness, and some of it is ours. <laughs> and we can't go around being totally judgmental. Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world. He came into the world so that it might be saved. And he did this by extraordinary example of perfection, but it's such winsomeness that the worst of people rushed to him. Now, isn't that extraordinary? So, if we're to move from a culture of guilt to a culture of grace, um, we have to remind ourselves what is grace, have to ask ourselves, are we experiencing it now? And if we're experiencing it now, are we allowing it to mould our way of being so that when we express Christ to others, we're expressing what we have received. Are we doing grace? Okay? Now then, it's half past. I expect to be finished this by quarter two-ish. <laughs> Listen to this, first of all. This is from Psalm 32. I love these words. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, isn't that awesome? We have a God who has made the heavens and the earth, who is so awesome he can, with a flick, metaphorically speaking, of his finger, send our little globe spinning out of orbit and through space. We have a God who by the power of his word brought life and light into existence. This invisible God who this very moment is upholding the universe by his word of power. I'm fascinated listening to scientists who get into deeper and deeper, uh, sort of look sm uh, smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller bits of our uni universe, and, and, and they, they've got these amazing minds and, and abilities to perceive things and, and put ideas together. And over and again, they said, but there's something we don't understand. There's something, there's something which connects it all up, which we haven't found yet. Well, I don't think I'm being... Go on then. The psalm, I would do that in a, just a moment. Thank you. Feel free to do that, by the way. Interaction's good. We're a body. Okay. And I'm amazed by when the scientists say things like that. I believe the scripture says, God, all things are held together by his word. That's in Hebrews chapter 1. The psalm I read, which is Psalm 32, I read the first two verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So we have this almighty God. We have us creatures 
let's face it, I remember standing on Hallfield Common on one occasion years ago and just looking out over the horizon and it suddenly struck me that in terms of the universe I'm standing on this tiny little crust of earth. And I am so small. What is man that you are mindful, said David in Psalm 8. Or the son of man that you care for. We are so small and yet we are assured by the presence of Jesus amongst us that God has such care and love for us. Us who have ruined this world or go about trying to ruin it and try go about and ruin other people if we're not careful. That this God should care for us and declare our iniquities isn't that amazing? He could go, how dare you? But he appears in his son, Jesus Christ, and says, I'm not here to judge you, little people, for shouting against Almighty God. I'm here to win you back and be your father, your savior, your God again. Now, do we deserve that? We don't. We've all got the proof text, which we find in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are saved by grace, through faith, not by works. It's not anything that we do so that no man can boast. We can't turn around and say, well, of course God saved me because of my Christian potential. Stuff and nonsense. God saved me because my, because my potential in my company or, or, my, or the, what I can do with my wealth or, or, or the family that I come from or the position I hold in, in my community. Stuff and nonsense. It's not because of anything that we are or can do. Grace is this favor of God which brings this forgiveness of transgression, this favor which comes undeservedly as a gift. Now, isn't that amazing? If anyone is in Christ, this is 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. As far as God is concerned, the old has passed away, the new has come. So what expectations have been placed upon you that weren't fulfilled? What sins have you committed where objective guilt is justified? How many times have you received a speeding fine for doing 40 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour limit at 4 o'clock in the morning or whatever? How many times have you really hurt somebody in the past and they keep getting back at you because they won't forget it? Their sarcasm goes on from a distance with barbs and you're so 
You're so sorry that you did it, but you can't get rid of these constant insinuations. The guilt that you feel because you didn't succeed because the way your parents wanted you to, or the way you're now striving in business because that's what your parents expected you to do, but you wish to goodness you could get out of this and be you. Anyone who's in Christ has been made a new creation from God's perspective. You've been given a new spirit and he considers that the the old has passed away. Look, the new's come. And so what was considered transgression, justly or unjustly, is forgiven because God has received you and washed you. And Psalm 103, I think it is, says, and I love this phrase, he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Now, I've not traveled around the world yet. Some of you have done it a few times, I guess. But if you travel, I guess that if you travel east, you can get to a political west, but you never actually end up going east. Stop going east. (laughs) He has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Do you deserve this? Do I? No. But does he love you? Not half. (laughs) Now that's awesome. Now it doesn't provide us with an excuse to go on and be miserable old so-and-sos and and slagging people off just like we did before. Because he gives us a new spirit to go with it. But we fail and we have to get up pick ourselves up, dust ourselves down, and we come back to him and we say, look, Lord, I've done it again. Please help me. Forgive me. And the thing about grace is that it's not a one-off. He has, Christ has once for all died for our sins. He doesn't, hasn't died for the sins that you and I are at present aware of so that tomorrow when we become aware of something else oh, here we go again Christ died for sin once for all John the Baptist said behold the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Christ has died for those things you haven't become aware of yet. Grace is already outpoured for what next week you become aware of that you weren't aware of today. And yes, we get on our knees and we confess our sin, but we confess our sin from the heart and we say, Lord, we will forsake it, fill us anew with your spirit and the freshness of his pardon because of his unlimited grace which Paul says, writing to the Ephesians, he has lavished on us, continues through the generations till we shall see him face to face. Now, isn't that wonderful? That is what grace is like. 
The next question then is, am I experiencing it? <laughs> because it's a free gift. Here's that um, proof text again that we easily quote, but sort of gloss over it because many of us know it so well. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Now, grace saves you. If those guilt feelings, especially those subjective guilt feelings, get in the way, so you say, and I've done this, and you may do it, oh, but how could God really love me? Surely I, I really need to get on my knees and pray for another week. I can't really expect God to reach out to me and forgive me at the moment. I'm just so terrible. Well, on the surface, that seems quite humble. But in reality, we're forgetting that grace has saved us. And we should say, Lord, this is how I feel about it. I am wretched, but I'm not going to let my self-pity or my feelings or my false humility or whatever it is get in the way of the fact that you have gifted me with mercy and forgiveness. I don't deserve it, but I do accept it. I like Psalm 37 which says commit your way to the Lord trust also in him and he will act if we do commit our way to God if we are trusting in him this faith by which we're saved if we're trusting with him, in him and we find it difficult with these subjective feelings of guilt we can expect him on the strength of his promised word to act inside us. Act in me, Lord God, so that I know you've forgiven me. Thank you. And then feel the bubble of joy again. The sense of wonder. It blows me away that here I am after 40 odd years as a Christian so far from perfect. I, I, I shared last week about a struggle I had with bitterness and, and um, ambition, selfish ambition. That was a long time ago. I think during the week it tried to find a way back again. Um, I've, there are such hard times when you feel exposed and God's doing a new work in you like that. And then you realize that He's not doing it because he hates you or he's condemning you. He's doing it because he loves you and he's changing you even more into his likeness. But when it's being hard, I could wish that I would suddenly be perfect. You'd think after 40 years I would be perfect, wouldn't you? 
Oh dear. I'm still a work in progress. There should be a notice there. Be a care. Take care. God at work. Um, but, you see, it then astonishes me that grace has followed me, preceded my becoming a Christian, and followed me all the way through, and is still there in an abundance, because I have been welcomed into eternal habitations as a child of God, along with you. Now then, maybe what you need to do today is just sit down and say, Lord, revive in me, revive in me the reality of grace, the experience of welcome, the reassurance of forgiveness. Remind me that uh, last week's failures haven't kept you at arm's length from me today. Because, behold, he's standing at the door and knocking anyway. Here I am, he says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'd love to have heard him say those words. What tone of voice did he use? What facial expression did he have? What body language made people hear his words and say, I feel lousy, but I'm coming. <laughs> Thank you so much. The grace which poured out of me. Now then, when we are experiencing this grace again ourselves, it is going to affect the way we present Jesus to the world. Isn't it? Won't it? Because... Let me quote Galatians 5.22. You know this, except that you might get some of the words in the wrong order, as I do sometimes. You'll know this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. All the single-syllabled word in English come first, okay? Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness. All the two-syllable words in English come next. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All the three-syllable words come last. So it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Greek says this is the fruit, not the plural fruit, but the one fruit of the Spirit in lives which are new creations. Yes, these things are working through us and transforming us little by little. The Holy Spirit is changing us from one degree of glory to another. And often we read these verses almost under the, under the feeling of guilt. Oh dear, I haven't been very long. Oh no, my patience. Oh no, how kind. Oh dear. And so the legalism bit comes into it and we get all guilty about it. Well, just remember, if this is fruit of the Spirit, we're talking about nature of God. Because he's not breathing into anything, it, uh, anything into us which is unnatural to God. So God is like this in himself, and he's like this with you. 
Isn't that great? Loving. He joys over you. It says that in Zechariah. He's at peace with you through the blood of his son. He's patient with you. Think of all those years. He's kind to you. Um, there was somebody in this church all those years ago that really got up my nose. Well, and I probably got up their nose too. But, but it happens like that sometimes, doesn't it? And I went round to visit this family on one occasion, and um, they had piqued me a little bit um, the week beforehand, and I was a bit nervous about this sort of um, visiting them again. I liked them, but, you know, up the nose, you know. And uh, when I got in, I sat down, and the first thing the family did was tell me how God had answered their prayers. And, you know, I was quite annoyed about that. <laughs> Under my breath, I was saying things like, how dare you answer their prayers? Can't you see how they're getting up my nose? But God is very kind to us and with us. And his grace extends to us whatever the other people in the fellowship are thinking of us at the time. Isn't that wonderful? You see, this fruit of the Spirit is telling us what God is like. And so when we're expressing him out there, he wants his likeness to be spreading out through us in things like love and patience and kindness help, self-control, gentleness, and things like that. Now then, this is not expressed necessarily in words, it's expressed in action. So you are in the office, or the pension queue, or the, no, you wouldn't be in the school dinner queue, would you? Or wherever. You're in this place, and you hear people gossiping mercilessly about someone. The fruit of the Spirit doesn't join in that gossip, does it? And if it senses injustice, it doesn't jump in where angels fear to tread, but if the opportunity is there, it sets matters right. The fruit of the Spirit acts as peacemaker between warring parties. The girl at the typewriter over there and the under-manager over there, and you in the middle, or whatever. I don't know how they do these things. It'd be a, not a typewriter, it'd be a computer, wouldn't it? Beg their pardon, I'm really old. You see. Then the fruit of the Spirit would want you to be a peacemaker, not take one side or the other unnecessarily, unless one person was obviously right and the other person was obviously wrong, but then the fruit of the Spirit wouldn't get into judgment, would it? It wouldn't stop loving one because they're so obviously wrong and just lavish all its attention on the other because Christ died for that one and for that one. And we don't think of people from any human point of view anymore. We see them in the light of Christ. If we see injustices going on, then even though it hurts us at times, if we're in the position where it's, you know, we're, we're likely to be involved, then we stand up for what is right. Even though there may be a crowd of people who are going about it the wrong way. In Watch It, there was a, um, 
I was a governor and a chaplain in a school, the teacher of RE was um, quite um, an outrageous gay man. He was, he was suspended after a while because of an allegation in the community that he had acted inappropriately with a young lad. Now, he was suspended for six months on full pay and after a full police investigation, he was totally exonerated. He was not guilty. But in the community, there was uproar about him. And I took a position of supporting him, not as a gay man, but supporting him against the bullying, unfounded anger of others. Because I was there, involved. Do you see what I mean? I was the chaplain. That's not easy to do that. When he was exonerated, it was impossible for him to continue at the school, which was an injustice in itself. But he came to me to ask me for a reference. Now, I believe I acted to the best of my ability in a Christ-like way. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, and now I have to look down at the page myself, faithfulness and gentleness. So the words we speak will be judged by the actions we take. And when we understand grace, we will act out grace. And then when we speak about grace, people will say, I think I know what you mean. I've seen it. I've seen it in you. 